I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. My guest is Jeremy Lent. He's been described as one of the greatest thinkers of our age. He's the founder of the nonprofit Leology Institute, which is dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on the earth. And he's the author of The Patterning Instinct. A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, and his new book is The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Their Place in the Universe. Jeremy, welcome back. Thank you so much, Tony I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts, your explorations, your visions, your imaginings of a more life-affirming ecological civilization. In our last conversation, we talked about some of the foundational problems with our Western culture and the existential crisis we're facing on the planet. And also you went into some of the new science that's revealing the flaws in our worldviews and assumptions about the world and our place in it. That's really at the root of all these problems that seem to be growing exponentially. Right, exactly. When you imagine our modern technological consumer culture becoming a more life-affirming ecological civilization, what do you envision and how do you see that happening? Yeah, well, I think these are some of the most important questions that we can delve into. And maybe the best way to begin looking at that is just to start off with a recognition of how much needs to change. Because a lot of the time, optimistic people and people very well-meaning come up with ideas of how we can improve our society, how we need to move in a positive direction, which is great. But the problem with some of these ideas is that even if they were adopted, they wouldn't actually move the needle to the extreme way that we need to, to avoid real, seriously, the potential of collapse, both collapse of the ecosystems around the world of the living earth, and ultimately quite high possibility of the collapse of our civilization itself. So I think one of the things that I like to look at is the analogy of like an operating system. Like imagine, you know, something like a Windows type operating system, which had some flaws to begin with, but you sort of had these workarounds. And then slowly as it gets more extensive, the bugs get more extreme and people keep working on the bugs and the things that fix the bugs themselves create even more bugs. And so you get this whole team of people just frantically trying to like fix everything. Until somebody comes along and says, hey, we need a new operating system. And, of course, everyone would respond by saying, 
we don't have time for that. You know, everything's too urgent. We have to fix everything. We can't change the underlying basis. But then at a certain point, if you don't, then the thing just kind of collapses. And I think that's very similar to what we're looking at right now. The civilization that we exist in right now, because we're so used to it, and it's there in every sort of interaction, every media output, whatever it is we're seeing, we kind of forget about the fact that it has a basis in terms of wealth accumulation, extraction, exploitation. Those are the fundamentals of the civilization based on this kind of underlying ontological viewpoint, if you will, that humans are separate from nature, separate from each other, and the right thing to do is to make as much as you can for yourself at the expense of everyone else around you. Now, there is a different possibility for a different kind of civilization. And this is not like the sort of tired old breakdown between capitalism and socialism that we saw in the 20th century that defined much of the political debates. Because the reality is that even socialism was really based on extracting resources from the living earth as much as possible. And the only argument really was who organized it. Was it organized by the market or organized by the state? And some difference maybe in the way it was distributed. And that was about it. What I get excited about is this idea that a number of people around the world have been developing over some decades now, which is to look at life itself as the source of a different kind of building our civilization. And what that means is just to look at ecosystems. If you look at the ecosystems, how they work, whether it's tropical forests or savannas or whatever they might be, many of these ecosystems have been around for millions and millions of years, in spite of changes in weather, you name it. And they've shown resilience and flourishing. And you have this like rich abundance of life in this ecosystem. And there are certain principles that life has evolved over basically billions of years on Earth that we can actually learn and actually apply to human civilization. And the phrase that arises from that is this notion of an ecological civilization, which would really entail changing the foundation from that wealth accumulation to basically a civilization that was life-affirming. Yes. So I'm wondering if now would be the time to start translating that into the different areas of our society, like education and parenting, economics, science and technology, medicine and right. healthcare, social justice, politics and governance, religion and spirituality, <laughs> and of course, the way we approach work in our culture. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, you really done a great job there of covering the whole range of really what we mean by civilization. And that also does capture the scope of what we're talking about, that it's not just a matter of changing the economics or, you know, changing our culture or, or anything like that. It's actually all the different elements of the human experience living together in society on Earth is what we're talking about. So thank you for really kind of establishing that range. And maybe the way to feel into what we're talking about, maybe to begin with, it's almost like a two-tier translation, because the first step is to say, well, what are some of these principles that ecosystems actually are based on? And then from there, once we understand how that works in nature, then we can sort of ask ourselves, well, how would that actually apply to human civilization? Because there's no doubt about it. Human civilization is not the same as nature. And we don't want it to be the same as nature. You know, in nature, of course, there's predators and prey, and animals are getting killed and eaten all the time. 
course, we don't want to do a one-on-one translation of an ecosystem like that to civilization. So there's a certain sort of deep understanding of the principles rather than the like specifics in an ecosystem, and then applying those principles. So let's actually look at some of those principles of an ecosystem first. And probably the most important one, and this is one that I actually talk about in the Web of Meaning to a large degree, because it applies in every part of nature, like from the way cells work in an organism all the way to how major ecosystems work, is this concept of mutually beneficial symbiosis. And what that basically refers to is like two different organisms finding a way to work together so that each offers the other organism something of value that the other organism can't do for itself. And as a result of that, it's mutually beneficial. It's a win-win. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not like one organism sort of thriving at the expense of the other, but they learn to thrive together. And here's what's fascinating about that. You know, we're used to hearing that nature is all about competition and the whole selfish gene myth and all that stuff about, you know, evolution is the result of selfish genes ruthlessly competing. But what evolutionary biologists have discovered now is that the major steps in the growth and complexity of life from when life was first just a single-celled organism all the way to multicellular organisms to mammals and then to humans and all everything in between, those steps came as a result of increases, stepwise increases in mutually beneficial cooperation. Different species and organisms working out how to live together mutually beneficially. So that is a fundamental element of the way ecosystem works. And if you walk in nature, you see that. You see the trees getting energy from the sun, and then they give nutrition to other animals who then take their seeds and help them to spread elsewhere. And then the animals leave waste products, which the fungal network recycles, and then actually helps the trees to communicate with each other. So all of these different elements work together. Now, another really important principle is this notion of diversity, that in nature, things don't all work in the same way. And there's incredible diverse way in which different elements find their niche within the ecosystem, and they contribute a certain part by sort of fulfilling their own particular way of being. So diversity is a huge part. And maybe one other key part, there's a few more, but I don't want to get too detailed on the list, but this is a key element, what I call fractal organization. And again, one of the insights that biologists and systems biologists understand now about nature is it actually exists fractally, which means the same principles apply to a particular cell that applies to an organism, that applies to a whole species, that applies to a whole ecosystem working together. And that creates what's known as a holarchy, where each element within the ecosystem both has ecosystems within it and is part of something bigger. So this leads to a profound insight of what I call the fractal flourishing, which is that the flourishing of any individual organism within that ecosystem can only be fully realized when all of its parts are healthy and when all of the parts of which it is a part are also healthy. So you need the health to flow all the way through. So these are just some of the ways in which ecosystems actually work. And if we apply that to human society, well, it leads to some of the key sort of principles 
for example, if we look at diversity and this notion of in ecosystems, how things are all differentiated and integrated, well, that leads to ideas like community self-determination, indigenous rights, and basically rights for any group self-defined by, say, ethnicity, gender, or any other type of self-definition to fully thrive in their own way as part of something bigger. So not so much saying we're separate from the rest of society, but to say by us thriving, society thrives as a whole. Another way in which we can recognize this notion of this fractal flourishing I talked about, if we look at society, it would basically mean that human society needs to be based on individual dignity, individual self-determination. So that would lead quite logically to some ideas that are actually beginning to spread in discourse right now, like one idea is like universal basic income, this concept that actually rather than having some sort of welfare that people can only get from the state if they meet certain criteria or whatever, to recognize that actually every single human being alive today basically has a right to access this accumulated wealth of knowledge and all the physical, tangible, material wealth that humans have created over generations. And the universal basic income is to give a basic amount of income to each person to allow them to fill their basic needs without having to sort of go begging or without having them to feel that they are, have an obligation for that, allowing them to then spend their time on pursuing what they want to do. And in our standard way of looking at that, people tend to dismiss that based on this kind of myth of our mainstream culture. Well, humans are just selfish and greedy, and so if they're given enough money to live on, they'll just you know, get addicted to drugs and do all kinds of bad things, and they won't contribute to society. Well, in all experiments of universal basic income now, which there's been quite a lot, the opposite turns out to be true. But actually, when humans are given the basics that they need, they actually spend their time looking to do things that are truly meaningful for them. And they end up getting engaged in community. They end up getting engaged in doing things that actually lead to the benefit of their community and their society, rather than, in fact, there's a reduction in addiction, a reduction in crime, a reduction in the things that are negative for a society. So those are some examples. I particularly love that example because I think it's a wonderful stepping stone towards the eventual elimination of money altogether. Right. So that right from the beginning, everybody can be brought up and supported to pursue their own individual, authentic dreams and desires and interests in life, which would naturally contribute to the well-being of the whole by virtue of that principle of diversity. That's absolutely true. There's also that concept that we touched on earlier of the deep pursuit of well-being in humans is not a matter of sort of getting more stuff or having higher status, but it's what Aristotle talked about as eudaimonia, which can be understood as basically any organism or a human being truly fulfilling their life's potential. And when people are given the basics that they need, they can actually spend their time pursuing that eudaimonia, pursuing their full well-being, which only leads to the benefit, again, in that fractal way, not just of them, but all the people that they're interacting with. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And if we're not able to do that, to me, it seems like we're 
more or less wasting our time. Yes. I think that our society is essentially structured right now, designed to get people to really, as you say, waste their time. I mean, essentially, when we look at the fundamentals of our society, of this sort of capitalist, growth-oriented society, it's structured in and driven by these gigantic transnational global corporations whose job it is to increase shareholder profits as fast as possible, to earn a growing amount of profits as fast as they can. And they do that by basically trying to turn humans into essentially like consumer zombies, try to condition our minds so that we think that what we're meant to do in life is earn as much money as we can in order to spend as much money as we can to get the highest status. So essentially, it trains people to actually be productive parts of the same machine that conditions people and also to be consumers. So they put all their life energy into sort of going up this ladder or what's called the hedonic treadmill in order so that they can then consume more and help this engine continue. And this whole profit-driven engine has not actually been developed for the well-being of any human being, but has simply become a self-reinforcing process. There, of course, some people do very well out of. Some people become billionaires and live wealthy lives, but they're not the ones creating the system. The system essentially got created from this underlying sense of extraction and exploitation as the driver of society, which really began pretty much in Europe in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. which gave rise to our education system, which is pretty much designed to churn out people to participate in this wage slavery system. Right. With their exactly. only reward being that they can, at the end of the day or on the weekend, they can go to the mall and, and shop. Exactly, exactly. I'm really glad that you bring education into it because that is a key foundation of what needs to be changed to move towards this kind of ecological civilization vision. I mean, in a way, even the best teachers in the sort of conventional structures of education today, who are really trying to get their students to be as successful as possible, are really simply doing an excellent job of conditioning them to actually get on that hedonic treadmill, to actually move away from their own sense of eudaimonia and long-term well-being to move away from the recognition that their well-being might come not from being part of that machine, but from actually spending more time in nature, spending more time just hanging with their family or just doing things that feel really meaningful to them but don't necessarily lead to higher grades and getting into the best academic institution and then getting into the best business school or law school, whatever it might be, and then becoming sort of more efficient cogs in the machine. So it does lead to a redefining of education as being really giving the tools to children and adolescents to develop wisdom skills, develop skills of emotional intelligence, social intelligence, and ultimately to feel into their own sense of what it is that actually gives them a feeling of true well-being and then pursue their lives in that direction. You know, how different the world would look if there were an education system that actually focused on that. Exactly. And from that, everything else would unfold very naturally in a much more life-affirming and ecological way. It absolutely would. I mean, the education system really has been designed to sort of 
create the fodder for this sort of growth-based capitalist extractive system. And really, we need to look even before the education system itself. A lot of great work has been done looking at the way parents actually raise their children right from the outset. Mm -hmm. And what some analysts have pointed to, and there's a couple of names I just want to put into the picture here. There's one psychologist slash biologist called Dasha Narvaez, who's written about this extensively. And then there's Rianne Eisler, who's written about this from a deep historical and cultural perspective. But basically what they have looked at is the realization that the ways in which we take as granted kids to be sort of raised right from infancy onwards is actually pathological for human well-being. But when we look at how humans spent 95% of our species history as nomadic hunter-gatherers, what we see is that kids were not in this basically mother and father nuclear home where sort of father knows best and is basically brought up in this kind of patriarchal set of values. But kids were actually given a much more sense of security, free reign in terms of not being disciplined and forced to do things in certain ways, and above all, given a sense of nurturing, given values from a sense of being sort of nested, being safe in their environments. And we can look at those as more like a sort of maternal type values rather than the patriarchal type values of authority and punishment if you do something wrong in discipline. And those kinds of ways in which kids are raised, which lead them to then basically push down their emotional needs and try to ignore them and basically become people who then support authoritarian type regimes and people who then feel like it's okay to separate themselves from others because they learned at a very early age to separate themselves from their own emotional needs. So there are deep changes that, of course, many people already understand and try to raise their children accordingly, but need to be sort of instituted right from the outset. And religion plays a large role in that type of patriarchal corralling of children and also underpinning the kind of education that we have in our culture, not directly, but like the whole King James version of the Bible is, is a very kind of materialistic, consumerist, man-over-nature doctrine in a way. Oh, this is absolutely true. And this is actually something that I explore in some detail in my earlier book, The Patterning Instinct, which looks a lot at the rise of monotheism and how that really led, it was really, it's like one of the great sort of scourges of humanity in a way. And this is not to critique those in those mainstream religions who really pursue a spiritual calling of love and connection. I mean, I'm not saying for a moment that everybody in any of these mainstream monotheistic religions is part of the negative elements. But if we do look at the underlying structure of these monotheistic religions. They basically say, well, first off, that the source of divinity is external to the living world. That's the first thing, like kind of creating this kind of dualistic cosmos. And of course, they also say that the source of divinity is a male. <laughs> and even though people might try to re-envision God in some other kind of way, it's always talked about God as a he. And in the Old Testament, primarily, like these terrible patriarchal punishment-based approaches that God takes 
to the children of Israel and anybody else who sort of intervenes with. And in fact, when you look at the Old Testament, it seems almost sacrilegious to say this, but it's a genocidal document. I mean, there is like numerous times in that document where you know, God tells his chosen people to go and kill every single man, woman, and child of some tribe that they supposedly get to invade. And when sometimes they get to be a little bit soft-hearted and don't kill anybody, God comes along and, and actually punishes them for not being completely genocidal in their approach. And that is the culture that we have as our sort of mainstream underpinning of our set of values. So there's a lot we have to unlearn in what monotheism has to tell us about sort of spiritual values. And capitalism, in a way, is a logical extension of monotheism and our modern scientific and technological orientation towards life. Yes, I think that there is some truth in that. I mean, if you look back at deep history, at least over the last few thousand years, you see this unique way of thinking developing in Europe, which really came from both the ancient Greeks and from Christianity. Really, Christianity was essentially a reinterpretation of some of the thinking of the ancient Greeks, like Plato and others. But you did get this sense of the sort of humans being this kind of split between the soul and the body and humans themselves being separate from the rest of nature. And that way of thinking actually was the foundation for the scientific revolution in the 17th century, where those great thinkers of the scientific revolution, Galileo, Newton, each one of them thought they were really doing God's work by using their reason to figure out how to understand what God created in nature, which we saw this kind of great machine created by God. And that's not to denigrate that way of thinking. As we've talked about earlier, the scientific revolution has produced incredible benefits that we all need to be grateful for. But it's no coincidence it was in that period that formed that way of looking at nature as something to be conquered, that capitalism first arose, that the corporation in its current state first arose with the East India Corporation and a similar kind of company coming out of the Netherlands. It's no coincidence that that's where racism first arose in its current form, where white Europeans view themselves as fundamentally superior to others. So the basis of white supremacy all came from the same core of a sense of superiority, a separation from and superiority over everything that is not part of your core identity, which is basically being a white male Christian, essentially. We do have to see similar underpinnings in each of those elements that many people today are working to overturn. Mm -hmm. And that old model and thinking of white supremacy and superiority gave them the right in their own minds to go around the world and rape, murder, and pillage anybody who stood in their way. That is exactly right. And let me take a minute to make a plug for a series that is actually on HBO. I hate to be advertising <laughs> HBO on your program right now, but it's called Exterminate the Brutes. And it's a four-part series that does an incredibly powerful, painfully, painfully explicit job of looking at these deep, brutal underpinnings coming from that way of thinking and how that's applied in colonialism, 
in the genocide of indigenous peoples in North and South America and the rise of slavery in Africa, and how that has led to that same way of thinking to the ways in which people like Trump and Bolsonaro and other authoritarians around the world whip up this kind of racist, white supremacist frenzy, even as we speak today. So now that we've, <laughs> we've laid these things out, are there any particular models of a life-affirming civilization or ecologically-based civilization that can include, you know, the science and technological advances that we have? There are, and I think that is really important to look at because when I'm describing an ecological civilization, it's actually not some sort of far-out vision purely based on idealism. Far from it, actually. There are groups all around the world who are living these principles and doing a great job doing so, but right now, they are not talked about so much in the mainstream media because the media is part of the system that we've just been describing. So, for example, one great model, we tend to think that corporations need to be the way they are because that's the only way that they can efficiently do all the production that's needed to make our world work, whatever. But actually, it's just as possible to structure companies in a cooperative basis rather than in this kind of for-profit, shareholder-owned, hierarchical way of corporations. And one example that's great to look at is actually in Spain, in the Basque Country, called the Mondragon Cooperative. And this is one of the larger businesses in all of Spain. It's got roughly 100 businesses that it actually incorporates, and something like 80,000 workers who are worker owners. And the whole system is based cooperatively. So the, the chief executive of any one of these businesses takes a salary that I think is no more than three times the salary of the people who are the lowest paid workers in that group. So a very, very tight differential between people. And they look after their own people. So if the economy shifts and one of the companies actually you know, comes across hard times and has to go under, they won't just lay people off. The organization as a whole will look at ways to retrain the workers so they can then shift into being able to work productively into something else. So that's one great example of something we can understand shows that it's possible to organize things in different ways. Another example I love to talk about is the sense of the commons. You know, we tend to think right now that the only ways an economy can be structured is either you've got private companies and you've got the state. And actually, you know, we think that because that's what we're told by mainstream economics, and that's what we, we sort of read about in the newspapers, whatever. But there's actually different elements to what a true economy is around that are kind of invisible because they're not talked about. And one is households, all the work that people do that isn't actually measured in GDP. But another important one is called the commons. And when you sort of first come across that word, when I first came across it just a few years back, in very sort of old-fashioned, like almost medieval. Those in the commons, like these sort of pastures where the peasants used to sort of take their animals to graze together or whatever. And that is actually one of the older ways in which the commons worked until those lands were appropriated by the barons and lords, etc. But the commons refers to any resource that hasn't yet been appropriated that is available for all human beings to work together cooperatively to use to everyone's mutual benefit. And we actually see the commons all around us that have been 
made more sort of dynamic through the internet. So something like Wikipedia is a commons. Something like Firefox is a commons where people actually develop a technology or an approach to something. And rather than trying to say, I want to earn as much money from this as possible and sort of grab all the profits, the ownership, the power, the organization becomes distributed. And what is so fascinating is that people love this. People, as we see from Wikipedia, they're ready to get engaged and commit their own time to be part of something bigger, to actually be part of a process that creates benefit for everybody around them. And these things self-organize in powerful ways, rather than the hierarchical, top-down, corporate kind of organization. They actually find ways for grassroots self-organization to be more effective, which is another of the principles that we see Again, back to an ecological civilization, we see that principle in how ecosystems work. Essentially doing good for good's sake. That is exactly right. And again, we've trained in our mainstream culture to sort of scoff at that and say, yes, but that's not what people really want to do. You know, most people will just be selfish and competitive and do their own thing. The opposite turns out to be true. The only reason people appear like that is because our society conditions that behavior to be rewarded and actually penalizes the behavior of actually trying to do good for the greater community. But in fact, humans evolved in that 95% of our history as nomadic hunter-gatherers. We evolved to want to do good for our community. We evolved to want to get recognized by others around us as somebody who's liked, somebody who's viewed as generous, somebody who people can turn to. That makes us feel good in our hearts, in our souls. And if we actually restructured society to allow that to flourish, that would actually self-organize. And that's the exciting thing about an ecological civilization. You know, back when I was growing up, and there'd be these debates between capitalism and communism, people like my father and many others, you know, part of the sort of capitalist mentality would say, Oh, yeah, that's the, the problem with communism is they're trying to force a system on people that goes against human nature. And what's exciting about an ecological civilization is it actually goes with the flow of human nature. It's actually a global sort of greed-based capitalist system that actually has to disrupt human nature from childhood onwards in order to get people to play the game. It has to sort of basically get little kids glued to their TV sets and their video games or whatever, and then start to push status considerations on them right from the very sort of cereal that they're eating rather than their friends and all this kind of stuff. It has to kind of train them right from the outset to go against their natural human instinct to want to be cooperative and part of community. And also creates the need for Madison Avenue type work. Exactly. Exactly. That's completely true. And to your point about, you know, what is out there right now in the world, these ideas themselves are actually shared by many different communities all around the world. For example, in South America, in countries like Bolivia and Ecuador, the indigenous people there who have a much larger say in their nation than we see in most places around the world, they've actually talked about these traditional ecological principles they call buen vivir, which you can loosely translate as good living, but really living according to well-being. And they have another phrase, sumek corse, which means something similar. 
And these concepts are written into the constitutions of those countries. And even though right now those countries are still part of this kind of global system driven mostly by the transnational corporations, and so these principles tend not to be lived according to as much as we'd like. The point is that there are some areas where that is recognized, that these have to be part of how we structure society. And in Europe right now, there's a growing movement called the degrowth movement that recognizes that we simply can't continue this society, this economic system that is based on continually growing our gross domestic product from one year to the next that that is just leading us to collective suicide because of the increase in resources that is required that's totally unsustainable. And they talk similarly about restructuring society along these pathways where it's fundamentally based on the well-being of humans living basically in a thriving ecosystem, a thriving living earth, rather than the way we're looking at it right now. So... Today, of course, we are on the brink of self-destruction through destroying the very environment that we depend upon and live within. Is there anything happening in this country, any, any movements that are actually gaining any traction and have any potential in the face of what's happening? Yeah, there's a lot of both smaller movements and large movements working in different parts of the changes that we need. For starters, the indigenous movements that have been trying to stop the fossil fuel expansion and the pipelines that have really gained the attraction of so many people around who recognize what they're fighting for, that they're fighting for life. Those kind of movements are gaining in power and are extremely important as part of that shift that we need because these are people who come from these affirmation of core indigenous life-affirming values. We also see a lot of smaller movements towards self-determination in the city level. Like, so, for example, here in the Bay Area, where I live, there are great examples of, like, a real estate cooperative in Oakland, very close to where I live, where they're looking at actually buying portions of real estate and then turning them into cooperatives so people can live there, not be part of this kind of money-based real estate economy where they can't afford to live in their own sort of neighborhood, but actually turn these places into shop fronts for people to actually serve their community. And actually people then live together. They give up the right to just sort of sell their particular property if the market prices go up and they want to kind of make a profit. And in return, what they get is a long-term investment in working together. They're called the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. And you see that similarly communal-based organizations looking at getting solar panels on houses and group panels on roofs to serve a particular neighborhood, where once again, it's not profit-based, but it's actually funded by these self-organized groups of people, and the profits go back to the people who put the money in in the first place. So you see that in cities all around. One of the things that is challenging is these are separate small entities doing their own thing. And one of the things I think that we need is this realization that all these different groups doing different things like that all across the nation are actually part of a bigger movement. And once you start connecting the dots, you begin to see that it's not just a group of separate people doing separate things, but it's actually a powerful movement that extends not just in this country, but all around the world. 
Well, that brings us to perhaps one of the elephants in the room. Sorry, elephants, to associate you with this. But but our political system and the people who gravitate to the top of the system and the kind of stasis that occurs in that system that seems to be impenetrable. Yes, and certainly right now, it feels like the country seems to get more and more polarized, and it seems like nothing anybody can do can stop that from happening. But I think that what is important is to realize that we have to get involved in the short-term day-to-day politics, and we have to be involved in sort of party political processes, because otherwise we might move even further away from where we need to go. But we also need to realize that change can happen in a lot of different layers away from just the sort of party political system. And so, you know, the excitement around the Green New Deal is something that is a part of the party political system, but something that is exciting to get behind. But I think even more than that, we really need to recognize that ultimately the change is going to happen at the grassroots level across the world. We have to look at things like when the hideous murder of George Floyd happened last year, And suddenly we saw, not just in this country, but all around the world, in just a matter of days, people saying, this is unacceptable. We have to change the very structures of which our society is causing this oppression. That's something that can move incredibly powerfully, incredibly quickly, because people feel the need for it. Similarly, when Greta Thunberg in Sweden spent days sitting in front of a parliament with a single sign saying, we've got to do something to declare a climate emergency. And basically, everyone ignored her. And she's told by her parents to go back to school. But that got noticed. And then, you know, just a couple of years from then, you had millions of school children going on strike, demanding that their parents actually began to, like, change what they were doing regarding the climate breakdown we're facing. And I really believe that the transformational change that we need will only happen when enough people are ready to recognize their part within this bigger system and go out on the streets in one form or other, non-violently, because that's the only way that is both actually sets the seeds for the flourishing that we need and actually also works. When people create a global movement together from the grassroots up. And I believe that even though it seems a long way from happening right now, What we're going to see is that as our society begins to unravel on account of its contradictions that are beginning to be seen more and more clearly from one year to the next, this possibility for reorganizing it in ways that we need is only going to increase. You know, new generations of kids, as they become aware of what's going on around them, realize that they simply cannot take what their parents are telling them as true anymore that the system, the worldview they got given by their parents no longer works. The scary thing is, is that many of those kids turning into adolescents and then young adults actually move towards the fear-based approaches of racism and patriotism and sort of putting up barriers against others. But I think this is what's so crucial, that those of us who see the possibility of something different, actually putting that vision out there so that those Younger people, as they're beginning to try to make sense of why things are falling apart and what could be different, can get inspired to work together for the transformation that we need.
Mm. Yeah, that reminds me of a conversation I had a few years ago with Stephen Jenkinson, who was talking about how the young people of today are looking to their elders and saying, what are you doing? You're not doing anything. When we look to you, we see nothing. And they're feeling that there's no hope. That's right. And it's very easy to look at the situation right now and just give up on hope. And I think, you know, a lot of astute people do just that. They say, yeah, we recognize how bad things are going. And, you know, these systems, they're so embedded, they're so built in place, there's nothing we can do. There's a movement that has gone somewhat viral, starting in the UK, but all around the world, by an environmental analyst called Jem Bendel. It's called the Deep Adaptation Movement. And he wrote a paper basically saying the collapse of civilization is not just likely, it's inevitable. And we need to just adapt to that reality and deal with the spiritual and emotional and community-based responses to accepting that. And it's very easy to see how people can look at that. And most of the analysis that people have, I don't disagree with. The forces that are moving us to destruction are powerful, and we're only accelerating at the moment towards that place. But what I also see is that the way society works is fundamentally non-linear. Those examples I gave before about somebody like a Greta Thunberg just coming out of nowhere and turning into a mass movement a year or two down the road, something like Extinction Rebellion, the impact that it had over just a year or two around the world, the number of communities around the world representing something like, I think, a billion people now, the districts that have declared a climate emergency in their cities or their counties. These changes can happen at speeds that we can't even begin to conceive of. And that's why, rather than considering this move towards like absolute destruction as inevitable, we have to recognize that the changes that need to be done have to be at very deep levels. We're not going to get there just by investing in renewables, no matter how important that is, is one step towards where we need to go. We're going to get there from what I call deep transformation. And that doesn't mean that we can only work on the deep transformation. People who are working on changing incrementally things within the system to improve them, absolutely, that's what's needed. But we also have to recognize and support those who are working on the deeper transformation that is required. Something like so what we were talking about earlier, changing the operating system itself, not just all the ways in which it manifests. And it sounds to me that that movement of deep transformation has to occur on all levels. And of course, it has to begin within each individual. Yes, well said. It's almost like if you imagine kind of three concentric circles, and we were talking before about fractal layers, it's a little bit like three fractal layers, like of who we are as cells, um, who we are in community, and who we are as part of these global systems. And each of those needs to transform. It's not that it begins with the self, because each of them actually initiates the changes at the next level and actually have an impact and help to generate the changes at the other levels. But we can't just focus on the change at one level without the changes happening at all three. So within ourselves, we need to each of us, and I speak for myself too, we need to decolonize our own minds. And those of us who've been raised in the global north, we've been conditioned to think in these kind of extractive colonialist ways. We have to recognize those ways of thinking in our own minds and keep working on those things every day in what we do. 
and our relationships with others. We have to change the way we are in community and actually look at how we can benefit those around us and how we can support those who are working in more life-affirming places. But those two layers is not enough without recognizing that we have to be part of these global systemic changes. And we can't just say, well, I'm working on my stuff locally and the whole world can sort of take care of itself. Because basically the whole world system is comprised of each of us as part of it. And it's a circular process that's happening throughout those three layers, those three circles. They're reinforcing yeah. each other and supporting each exactly. other. And, and that's what's exciting, too, is that they, they do reinforce each other. And so, you know, we can be inspired, like we can be looking at what some organization is doing elsewhere in the world and be inspired by something globally to actually make the changes happen at the community level or within ourselves. And it does. It sort of flows up and it flows down all at the same time. So in the face of what may appear to many people to be inevitable self-destruction, what is the value of dreaming and envisioning meaningful change? That is a great question, and it's something I think everyone needs to ask. And personally, the answer that I've come to in my own life is the value is actually lies in the very act of being engaged itself, in the very act of living that way itself. So it's this kind of recognition of not being attached to an outcome, of not going like, well, what's the chances of something good coming out of all this? And then when we see something bad, then we sort of get more depressed and, oh, the chances have gone down. It's not even worth it. The value comes out of actually being engaged in it, of recognizing that each of us is part of co-creating that future and recognizing that the very meaning of our lives as part of this whole system of which we're just one tiny little part of, the very meaning arises from how we engage in it. So each of us has the ability to envision that future that we want. And then we have the freedom to actually live into it. This is a phrase that really great systems thinker called Otto Sharma uses to kind of live into that emerging future. So it's not something like we have to sort of live like jerks today like with everyone else because maybe the, the better future will be then we'll live in a better way then. We actually live in the way as if we are living in an ecological civilization, as if we are living our lives that we have rejected the patriarchy, that we've rejected this form of exploitation and oppression of those around us, as if our identity really does extend to all of humanity and all of life, and start living that way. And when we actually start living that way, that informs our every conversation that we have. It informs the actions we take. It informs the choices we make about our lives. And the beauty about that is that it actually is having the biggest impact possible on helping to create that future. But also the experience that we begin to have of our lives is not based on some hope of what might happen decades from now, but based on actually what we are doing and the reactions that we're getting from people when we act in that way. Because the beauty is that when we put that out into the world, we tend to receive more of it back from others. And how it feels to engage in yes. that way. Exactly. In this present moment, despite what the future may look like. Exactly. Despite what the future may look like. It's a little bit like just kind of living into the mystery. 
mm-hmm. if you will. It's as though the future is like this kind of deep fog, basically, like where I live here in the Bay Area. Sometimes the fog comes in so deep that you know, if you're on the water, and you can only see a very short amount ahead of you. And so we don't know what's there. We don't know if we are looking at the ultimate destruction of our civilization a few decades from now. We don't know if we're looking at the sixth extinction. We do know that we're looking at all kinds of ravages from climate breakdown in the very near future. And we know that as a reality. But what we do know is the way in which each of us turns up each day. And we know because we experience it in ourselves how we are relating to those around us and to our society around us. And if we lead with love, that's a great concept of Van Jones a few years ago, the idea of the love army. It sounds so woo-woo, but actually it's the most powerful thing we have to compete against those sort of power elites and transnationals and authoritarian regimes and all the rest of it, is to actually lead from that sense of a realization of our deep connection with those around us and all of life on earth around us. And if we lead from that place and actually act accordingly, well, for starters, the quality of our own lives will go up tremendously. And secondly, we'll be empowering the potential for that future more effectively than any other approach could. Yes, and that, I think, sets a wonderful example for other people, especially young people who are looking to their elders for some kind of guidance or hope, and also realization that the catalysts that occur that tend to change history, for example, what occurred after the murder of George Floyd, those kind of catalysts happen at unexpected moments. We never know. That's right. We never know when or how they're going to happen But if we don't give up, if in a sense, as you were just talking about, if we follow the path with our heart in it, then in a sense, at least in this moment, anything is possible. Exactly. That's completely true. And that's also borne out by systems science. And when we realize that the system that we're living in is this kind of complex, nonlinear, self-organized system, that nonlinearity is because we never know which action we take or which connection we make has impacts way beyond the magnitude of what we can even conceive. And the way that networks work is that some things kind of ripple out and become tidal waves. And so sometimes the things that we might do that we think are the most important tend to sort of just ripple into very little. And sometimes something we can do that we don't even realize we've actually had an impact on somebody, can actually amplify out and have massive impacts. And so from that, we can feel a bit liberated that, you know, the sort of cop-out feeling is, well, nothing I do is going to make a difference. And so it doesn't really matter. But that's actually not true. Everything any of us does may make a difference and has the potential to make a huge difference. And oftentimes, we'll never even know the difference it makes, which is both kind of liberating and it also leads to an existential responsibility that each of us actually is co-creating the future together. So it's not some spectator sport where somebody else is doing. It's what we're doing. Yes, and if we can let go of any attachment in the outcome and also letting go of a sense of of taking credit for anything or any kind of personal satisfaction out of it. Exactly. I'm glad you raised that, Tonya. That's one of the more important elements to realize that 
again, coming from our mainstream culture that's very individual-based, this sort of archetype of the hero and the hero's return. And people oftentimes, when they do look at what's going on in the world and want to make a difference, feel it's all about them. You know, they've got to be the most impactful and that project has to be the one that's really going to be the success. And actually, when we recognize that all this transformation is part of a complex self-organized system, one of the implications of that is it's just as important to amplify the work of those around us as it is to be successful in the thing that we're doing. So it's crucially important to look at those we know, look at those that we see doing good generative work in areas around us and say, what can I do to help you? What can I do to amplify what you're doing? Not in order to try to sort of score some points for myself or whatever, but simply because I want to be part of this whole like multidimensional transformation going on around me. So that's a very important thing to focus on. So that's like the wisdom of the hunter-gatherer villages. That's exactly right. The sense, again, the deeply evolved human sense of group identity. And in fact, in hunter-gatherer nomadic times, when somebody, when some sort of warrior would get sort of too big for his breeches and start to think that he was the one who the whole group relied on, people wouldn't like that. And they would bring him down. And necessarily they'd gang up against him to stop him from sort of trying to take too much power at the expense of everybody else. This is very much a group transformation. It takes a village, as they say. Or, and actually, in the words of the great modern Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, he made this great statement at one point saying, the next Buddha will be the Sangha, which means the community. So the next Buddha will be the community, not just one individual person coming to save us. And that's what it's going to take, because in our culture, we have worshipped the rugged individual, the hero that comes riding in on the white horse. And there is no such person who could really change things in this world anymore. I mean, there are people who talk about even if, if there was a quote-unquote second coming of Jesus, that he would just be murdered because not only would they not recognize him, but they would hate everything that he stood for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that is absolutely true. And I think that we also need to look for leadership from the groups in society that have been oppressed by this system of the white patriarchy. So we need to look for leadership from women, from non-white people, from people from the global South. So I guess one way of thinking about it, if, if there were a second coming of somebody right now, it would probably be a non-white woman from the global South who could really lead us into a different way of understanding things. But I say that partly jocularly because there is no one person that we're going to turn to. Even when I talk about the example of Greta Thunberg, it's not about this one person, Greta Thunberg. It's about people sharing this sense of collective outrage at what's going on and a collective sense of self-determination and self-autonomy that we can make a difference when, but only when, we actually connect up together and energize each other as part of that network. There's a kind of fundamental democratic element to this that supersedes any previous notions of democracy, any smaller-minded notions of democracy, that the well-being of the planet and of the human race depend upon at least a critical mass of humanity rising up and saying no more. 
That's completely true. And that's actually another part of this sense of what an ecological civilization would look like. There's a concept that is called subsidiarity, which ironically, actually, that's a word that comes from the Catholic Church, which is kind of interesting. But part of the success of the Catholic Church over the hundreds and hundreds of years was it puts down the power of decision-making to the lowest possible level. So everyone didn't have to wait for the Vatican to tell them what to do. But this concept of subsidiarity is actually more like how ecologists work. That, you know, when the grass, literally the grass roots of an ecosystem don't look to some tree to tell them what to do. They make their own determination. In fact, every root does its own determination as part of a bigger whole. And so this notion of subsidiarity is like deep democracy, where the power devolves from the nation and even from particular sort of uh, states and devolves actually to maybe the watershed or the region or the cooperative, but the lowest possible levels at which decisions can be made and the places where people actually feel the impact of those decisions. But at the same time, there's this notion of we've got to go down to the grassroots and also have the global sense. So it's like this notion of what's called reciprocal causality, where the grassroots impact the whole system, but there also has to be a greater global solidarity than there's ever been before. That The United Nations or some similar body needs to have even more power than it's ever had before to actually help to legislate and set parameters for the global problems, things like climate breakdown or the destruction of life in the ocean or desertification or the power of transnational corporations. So there has to be deep democracy at the grassroots as part of a global power-making changes too. So that means that as a species, we have to rise above nationalism. Absolutely. I mean, nationalism is just another result, really, of that same way of thinking that arose in Europe in that period of time. Nationalism is very much based on a sense of identity arising from excluding others, coming up with artificial senses of superiority of the in-group at the expense of the out-group. And that is not the way in which we're going to transform where our civilization is headed in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And I imagine there could be positive aspects of nationalism, but we can't allow the negative aspects of nationalism to hold us back and even to cause harm any further. Than That's that. right. I mean, it's wonderful to feel group identity. If we are part of a community that has a sports team that we're proud of and we watch them play others, it's wonderful to, you know, get to be part of that sense of shared human solidarity to cheer on our particular team. As long as it's understood that that's all part of playing a game within a greater context, where actually what we share with the people on the opposing team and the opposing supporters is something far larger. And similarly, we can be proud of ethnic identity. We can be proud of each nation has its own identity. That's that recognition we were saying before about diversification in an ecosystem. In just the same way, that the grass wants to flourish as grass and beetles want to flourish as beetles and mangrove swamps want to flourish as mangrove swamps. We're not trying to say that each of those should lose their identity, but at a greater scale, each of those are an integrated part of something larger and they actually end up adding to the health of that larger system. And so each of those layers of identity 
is only good, only leads to well-being when it's part of adding to the flourishing of the larger system. And it seems like it, it would be hugely beneficial if the white dominant culture that still is feeling king of the hill could uh, adopt some real, genuine humility to recognize the shortcomings of its behavior over over the past few millennia and, you know, to just allow the space for a new kind of operating system to be implemented. I agree completely. You know, the critique of white supremacy that is being talked about increasingly in some circles is absolutely correct. And that's that way of thinking that, as we talked about before, arose in the 17th century. And what people are beginning to recognize is that by realizing this white supremacy, and for those of us who are white, such as myself or you, and especially those of us who are white males and have been raised in a privileged circumstance and get to have many of the benefits of this entire system, the thing to realize is that by actually sharing those benefits with others around us, it's not a zero-sum game. We don't actually lose power. We don't actually lose benefit. What we do is actually all gain, because by having others join onto that platform, by having others actually be able to contribute and do their parts, we all gain, because rather than having to put up defenses and try to retain, like in a system of violence, oppression over others, we can actually relax and actually get the incredible richness of other perspectives and be part of something much bigger and much more wholesome that we can experience in our own lives. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing that's possible out of all of this. If people could just relax and let go of this, what seems to be some deeply rooted endemic fear of the other. Exactly. Exactly. That it's not a zero-sum game. But of course, you know, the elite powers, the ones who maintain the status quo, do everything they can to sow that discord and sow that fear in other people by creating this kind of politics and economics of scarcity to make people feel that if somebody who's non-white is like a candidate for the jobs, then they'll get the job at the expense of them and then they'll lose out. And creating these kind of zero-sum game sort of artificial scarcity, basically. And that's where things like a universal basic income can fundamentally alter the dynamics of what we're talking about here. Right. And we don't have to look at that as a permanent solution, but it, I think it's a fabulous step in the right direction. Yes, I think that's powerful. And the exciting thing about that is since the COVID pandemic, people are actually beginning to talk about it in mainstream media, even places like the Financial Times, you know, seriously looking at it as a way to resolve some of the inequities of our society right now. Yes, and people are also starting to question their quote-unquote bullshit jobs, a la David right. Graeber. Exactly. <laughs> and our culture is just full of bullshit jobs, meaningless bullshit jobs. It is, and again, that's what leads to so much of the alienation and disaffection that ultimately causes this political polarization that we're looking at. The sense of meaning has been eviscerated from people's lives, and that works only too well 
for the sort of consumer capitalist growth machine. I mean, sometimes people say it's not that the system is broken. The system is working only too well. We just have to change the underlying system. And recognize what is really lacking in the system. And Exactly. And the one thing that we haven't directly spoken of, but has been implicit throughout this whole thing, is the spiritual element of all of this. Mm, yeah. You're right. And, you know, spirituality, that's kind of a loaded word in our culture. A lot of people start rolling their eyes and think, oh, it's just a woo-woo. But there's a fundamental scientific underpinning to this notion of spirituality that really underpins all of life and the way life really works. Yes, and as I explore in the later parts of this book, The Web of Meaning, this is one of the areas I go is to actually showing how the very idea of spirituality itself, the very word itself, can be understood not as something that is separate from scientific understanding, but really in simple terms, just as a focus on looking at the relationship between things, the connection between things, rather than the things themselves. And somebody might say, well, that's a strange definition of spirituality. But the very notion is that actually a person's spirit or as the spirit of a place or whatever, is actually something that emerges. This is you know, from a system science perspective that emerges from the complex way in which all the different elements of a person or that place, whatever it is, self-organize together to create a coherent, cohesive whole. And spirituality itself can be recognized as focusing on those spaces between things. And once you do start to focus on those spaces between things, your very sense of identity begins to dissolve the fixed barrier that we're told exists in identity, that just me as an individual person against the world. But identity itself begins to sort of dissolve into group identity, an identity with all of life, and an identity with all these ideas, this kind of universal shared experience of life that humanity has, like as part of life flowing on Earth billions of years in the past and into the future. And once our identity begins to go in those places, it naturally shifts what we want to do with our lives. So we don't just want to look out for number one at the expense of anything else. We actually are drawn to engage in making the world a better place, not because we think we should do it, but because we're impelled to, because we feel it in our guts that that is what life is actually about. Mm-hmm. And at one point, you bring up the issue of the quote-unquote hard question of consciousness, and you say that it's really not that hard at all. Right. <laughs> yes, that's right. And for people who are new to this idea, there is a philosopher called David Chalmers, who some decades back coined this phrase, the hard problem of consciousness, which went viral in that whole field and is spoken about a lot. Basically, what the hard problem of consciousness was in his conception was that we can use neuroscience or whatever it is to look at the ways nerves and neural connections happen and all that kind of stuff. But no matter what we do, we'll never explain this subjective nature of consciousness, the, the feeling tone or the qualia, as they're called, that moment-to-moment -moment awareness that is unique that only I have about my own experience and each person has about their own experience. So the subjectivity, and that's what he said is the hard problem of consciousness. 
But actually, evolutionary biologists have really shown that to be the fundamental way in which life evolved the complexity, what I call in the book animate intelligence, to actually relate to the environment in ways that allow for the future flourishing of whatever organism it is. And you can find, you go all the way back to hundreds of millions of years ago, to the beginning of the nervous system, to recognize how subjectivity actually is part of evolution. So that hard problem is really more of a kind of a dualistic, made-up construction more than anything else. And that does lead to this greater understanding of how subjectivity itself is there in all of life. It's not something that only humans have, which, again, we're told by our mainstream culture. But it's something that we are almost certain exists in plants and even in fungal networks. And basically anything that is living that uses these self-organized ways of relating to itself and the outside world in order to flourish. And that leads to the sense of this deep connection between each of us as human beings and the rest of life on Earth. Explain a little more what you mean by the subjective nature of that in those terms that you just brought up, because it's much easier to recognize that in our own experience, but to then see it in the rest of the natural world. You know, basically, if you look way back in evolution to hundreds of millions of years ago, before anything like modern life forms existed, there were single cells and then there were tiny little multicellular organisms. And they needed ways to sort of work coherently together as cells within a larger organism to relate to the world. So if something bad was happening, they needed a way to figure out to, say, move away from a source of danger or move towards something that might be a source of food. So that they had to begin to make complex decisions, even at those tiny little cellular layers. But as organisms got to be bigger, they had to do these kind of decision-making in more efficient ways. And so the development of nervous systems that first evolved hundreds of millions of years ago really was the result of just cells evolving to form speedier ways to react to what was good or bad in the environment and cause the whole organism to actually make a motion that actually would lead to that organism to survive and propagate itself. And from that very, very simple concept, first you had distributed nervous systems throughout the entire organism, and then they kind of concentrated in little areas called ganglia, and then they concentrated in a bigger area that we now call the brain. And in each of these cases, the brain itself would work to send out hormonal signals to the rest of the organism to say, do this, do that. So this is what happens to us moment to moment as we live. You know, unconsciously, our organism tells us, breathe in, breathe out. You know, we need to do that. Or after an hour or two, the deep animate wisdom of my own body might begin to say, oh, I need to you know, go to the bathroom or I'm getting hungry. I need to eat some food. So the system as a whole is sending out signals through my organism telling me these are things I should be doing. Now, from the point of Descartes onwards, we began to get this notion in Western thought that who I am is just this brain who is above all that stuff. That's just to do with my body, and that's not really part of intelligence. Intelligence is my ability to, you know, have language and form abstract ideas and all that kind of stuff. But what I explore in detail in the book is 
that sort of core set of processes that I call animate intelligence actually is far more complex. And that is a source of subjectivity and is far deeper in its wisdom and its intelligence than anything even that our own conceptual intelligences are capable of. But it's as humans, we have the ability to actually put those together to form an integrative intelligence. But when we begin to realize that, it leads to this fundamental realization that all of nature has that subjectivity that I was just describing in different ways. Of course, a plant perceives its environment and itself in a very different way than we do. We can't even imagine what it would be like to be a tree or a flower or no matter what it is. But in fact, it turns out that plants have as many as 20 different senses. So their experience of the world may in fact be even far more complex than our human experience. And that's kind of a humbling notion in itself. But it also leads to this sense of our deep connection with everything around us. Because we begin to see that for each of us as human beings, our animate intelligence is of the same type as the intelligence all around us on this earth. And for me at least, and for many people, that leads to the sense of the sacredness of life and the sense of the incredible crime that is being done by our civilization in destroying the richness of life on earth. Mm. Thank you so much for that explanation. That was really beautiful. Mm, thank you. That subjectivity is really the essence of, of our relationship with the world around us and how we connect with everything. That's right. That's right. And you know, when we focus our attention on that, it does change the way we relate to things. You know, it can be something as simple as you walk out to the garden you might have in the back of your house or something, and there's been a drought, and you look at the plants, and they're looking droopy because they haven't been watered. And we know what it's like to be thirsty. And it feels different, of course, for a human being than for a plant. But we can share at the deepest layer what that actually feels like. That plant is suffering because it needs water to flourish. Well, we understand that concept, and part of the reason for our ability to share those ideas is basically about half of our DNA is shared with a plant. It's not like these are alien organisms from some other planet or whatever. We actually share fundamentally the kind of life force that that plant has and that other creatures around us have. And I think that's part of the inspiration of really working towards the transformation of our society in the way that we've just been describing in some detail. Because if we do look at this realization that our civilization right now is headed for collapse and is destroying the richness of life on Earth, the vision exists. And it's a really wonderful, inspiring vision that if we can actually learn to use our human intelligence and technology rather than to destroy life on Earth, to actually be in that mutually beneficial, symbiotic relationship with life on Earth. It gives this possibility to move from the Anthropocene, or this period that we're in right now of sort of human domination, to what some people call the Symbiocene, which could be an indefinitely long period in Earth's history, when humans almost like become like the brains, or the self-awareness of life, being part of life, part of the sort of Gaian system, and where we could actually learn to thrive with all of life around us. And that would actually give us this potential to thrive into the indefinite long-term future in timescales way beyond anything we've seen in human history so far, to potentially develop the ability 
to you know to learn to connect with and relate to other life forms elsewhere in the galaxy and the universe. But the thing is, we could have by that time, if we developed into the symbiocene, we will have developed the ethical capability to relate to other life forms in a way that right now we haven't gotten to. We shouldn't even be allowed the power to relate to other life forms right now until we learn how to avoid destroying our own life forms that we share this earth with. And perhaps to re-embody the wisdom of these multi-billion-year-old organisms that had a very simple and subjective way of interacting with the world around it. And I think we've lost that through a sense of arrogance and sense of superiority and intellectual separation. Exactly. The simple lesson that our flourishing can be most sustainably enjoyed if it involves the flourishing of all those entities that are around us, that we share our ecology, our ecosystem of the earth with. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you again. Yeah, thank you so much. It's just a real pleasure to go deep into these questions with you, Tony, and I really appreciate the intentionality and the depth with which you approach these discussions. So thank you. Yeah, these are really delicious, delicious conversations, and I look Mm. forward to future conversations. I look forward to the same, Tony, definitely. And be well. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Jeremy Lent is the founder of the Leology Institute, which is dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview that could enable humanity to thrive sustainably on the earth. And he's the author of The Pattern in Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And his new book is The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.